Hello, chef. Hello, chef. Welcome to Food Court. I'm Shale McDonald, and I'm here with my chef friend, Alan Sadaby. How are you, chef? Chef. We're two chefs from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. We love food, and we love to talk about it. That is, that is something that has changed in culinary school. From the time that I went to school until now, uh-huh. I think that just throwing around the word chef is that's how it works now just like everybody's yeah. a chef you make sure that they know they're a chef you call them chef every sentence begins and ends with chef yeah and it wasn't like that not, yeah. not so long do you ago, like I don't it better it or do you like it worse well i think on the 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 most important thing is that it's an excuse to not learn anybody's name uh <laughs> especially your instructor <laughs> Uh, <laughs> true because i that's a good yeah, point yeah i think it's aside from that do you think it's before the do you think it's dumb do you think it's just like teenagers calling each other bro all the time <laughs> or do you or do you think it's like i don't know do you think it's an interesting cultural phenomenon that has like a very niche kind of appeal to people that might be in the food service industry and that that's oh absolutely know. it well i mean it's, it's yeah. both kind of um it definitely is a uh a phenomenon within that narrow culture of professional cooking um yeah. and i totally get it's because uh, they they kind of go a little ways into explaining it. Oh yeah. There's, there's basically an entire episode about it <laughs> uh, in the first season of the bear where it's like, this is why we do it um, because it like shows respect and builds the sense of team. And it's just a professional courtesy kind of, uh, and yeah. the, 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 in the bear, like the thing is the the thing that people are struggling with is it's not just the kitchen crew calling the chef owner chef. It's the chef calling the dishwashers chef and yeah. everyone in between, uh, sorry, everyone at every point of that hierarchy is just called chef, um, because they're a team. Um, so I get that. Um, and I like those, uh, I'm a sucker for those kinds of, uh, professional formalities and stuff. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's a bit much, but it's fine. I'm, I'm okay with it. Yeah, me too. We don't really do that at my work, except maybe sometimes in jest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yeah. Was, was that your phone? Yeah, it's my phone. I'm just going to quickly check. Sorry, just in case. Okay. I mean, it's a text, but so it shouldn't be like, I have to go and pick up kids, but, <laughs> um, you do have to go pick up kids. No, I don't. Okay. <laughs> there was, I think this is a good tangent that we could probably keep in. But, um, a few days ago, I cooked. Um, we had two beef tongues in the in our freezer, mm-hmm. and I took them out and I cooked them. I cooked them in a crock pot with uh, w- with the intention of putting them in tacos. So I had like. Okay. Onions and garlic and oregano and dried tomatoes and stuff in the crock. Um, 
and Lisa was like, what you cooking? I was like, oh, we've got some beef that I'm cooking. And then for a few days, I was a little bit... <laughs> oh, Alan, king of the euphemism. I was a little bit coy about what it actually was. Um, <laughs> yep. And yesterday, uh, yesterday morning, Lisa was kind of scrambling for something to take in her lunch uh, when mm-hmm. she was on her way to work. And so she just like hacked this piece of tongue off of the braise in the fridge um, and I didn't say anything to her and she ate it and um, this morning she kind of tried to do the same thing but she lifted the the one of the tongues out of the crock and, and was like what is this and I was like oh it's beef tongue <laughs> you're like it's beef just like I said <laughs> what I should like I, I should have said first like well you ate it yesterday right did you like it and she was like yes um, but anyways and she was like oh okay I see <laughs> Uh, but, and so there was kind of this awkward thing where I was like, well, you liked, you ate it yesterday and you liked it. Right. And she was like, yeah, but oh man, it looks pretty gross. Um, but she just texted me and she's eating it for lunch again today. And she's like, it's really good. I'm sorry. I said, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I think it's fair what she said. It's pretty weird seeing a whole tongue cooked. Sure. Um, I mean, unless what you do is cook tongue all day, but you know, right. Um, yeah, but she had just that first day, she just kind of like plunged her knife into the, the cold bracing liquid to, to get some protein for her lunch and didn't get to really take it all in. So totally. When's taco night? It was last night. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Wait, (laughs) I did. Okay. So she, she had the tongue for lunch yesterday and then I made like the, like I made flour tortillas and salsa and stuff and I cooked ground pork for the kids um and i oh, had I the tongue meat and i think lisa had the ground pork oh okay but anyways yeah the last night and tonight will be um we'll see which which side lisa lands on if she tonight if she goes for the ground pork or if she has the tongue oh i mean i'm curious to find out but i'd be shocked if she didn't have the beef tongue i mean that's the best taco you can get it's good yeah and it's actually what i think of the um what's it called la taqueria in mission in san francisco uh-huh which i've been to only twice and i think you were there both times and the beef tongue is my go-to it's uh yeah special it's delicious what were we talking about getting back on track right speaking of the first season of the bear mm-hmm. which is where i think they have that episode where they talk about why everyone calls each other chef is that right i think it's one of the first episodes first or second yeah yeah i guess like i feel a little bit bad because we did an episode about the first half of the first season of the bear and we said we were going to come back and do another episode after we were finished watching it Mm -hmm. um which was already long after hit it had aired right like i think when we were watching the first episode was months after it had already finished airing Mm -hmm. and we never came back and did that and now the second episode or the second season has fully aired and we still haven't done it. So, but we want to talk about the second episode. And so, second season. I think we should. So, yeah. Jeez. Should we start this episode over? Good morning. <laughs> Not doing too good. It feels like nighttime to me, actually. It's really overcast. And <laughs> That's true. It's really dark and it feels like night for some reason. Sorry. Yes. We want to talk about the second season. Um, but I feel like we can't really do that unless we at least say something about the end of the first season. Um, and uh, I I know I, I don't really fully 
know your like opinion on it, but I know that you were maybe a little bit disappointed, but or no, you you were excited by the end of the first season, but disappointed by how the second season began or something. Is that is that a correct assessment of your take? Yeah, I think that the 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 second half of the first season really ratchets up tensions to a breaking point, to an actual right. breaking point where they say, we're not doing this. We're going to we're going to close the beef and we're going to open right. a restaurant that is going to receive accolades and stars. Um, so that's exciting. Um, yeah. Yeah. When when the second season started and one of the kind of I don't know, sometimes I feel like TV shows, they just they feel like they really need like this kind of sensational, lurid, like thing to happen for people to keep watching um that doesn't actually make very much sense and probably isn't required for the story like the the money in the tomato can thing like <laughs> i was like oh that's interesting i i guess but then like in the very first episode of the second season they just take basically take the money back to cicero or what's his name cicero is that his name i don't know i don't know his name oliver Uncle, platt's that's what I... uh oliver platt's character yeah um, and I was like, why do we go through all of that? Why did, why did, uh, Mikey go through the effort of canning cash money into tomato cans? Yeah. Like, does he have a canning machine somewhere? Like he must. Well, I think seems very conspicuous though. seems like a hard thing to, to hide. But like he, uh, I guess his reasons are somewhat mysterious, but like, it seems like he did that. So that his so that Carmi and the others could have the cash to quote let it rip and open a restaurant or something. I don't know, but like it it just seemed like this huge kind of reveal in the first season that in the second season they just gave the money back to the guy and then he gave it back to them to open the restaurant. I don't know. It was just like, <laughs> why did we do this to each other? What what is going on? Yeah, I don't know. That's a really good question, and I don't know if there's a satisfactory answer. And in order to answer it, I, you know, to or in order to find out if there's a satisfactory answer, I'd have to rewatch the first season. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really very good at rewatching TV that I've already watched, mm -hmm. so that's probably not going to happen. Listener, if you have an answer to Alan's confusion or to both of our confusion, I guess, because, like, I don't really understand why he would do that either. I, I like, I, I guess, like, maybe it's because he was trying to, like, maybe maybe the, the money that he had borrowed to keep the beef alive or whatever, the m money that Mikey had borrowed to keep the beef alive, maybe it was coming from multiple sources. Maybe it wasn't just coming from their uncle, mm. you know? And so maybe when he was bringing money back in, he was hiding it so that the people who were going to extract it from him wouldn't know that he had it, you know. But I don't know. That just puts him in more danger and under more pressure. And I don't know. Maybe he – yeah, maybe he was doing that because he wanted to have something to give to his family or maybe he maybe he was specifically like trying to – set that money aside so that Carmi could do something, whether it was like take over the beef or not, because I'm sure it wasn't his intention to have Carmi take over the beef while he was still around right. necessarily it was probably his intention to get some money together to give to Carmi to start a new restaurant that would be more his style or something right. like that. And, and that, that was my first 
my first thought when you when they find the money but like this character cicero is so close to the family he's like at their christmas dinners and stuff so the idea that mikey could borrow a quarter million dollars from cicero and then somehow secretly give it to carmi and that carmi would be able to somehow bankroll a new restaurant without cicero like knowing wise to it like it it just seemed it was really i thought it was really dumb (laughs) yeah there is no there is no reasonable explanation the only the only the only real explanation is that he was doing a dumb thing right (laughs) i guess but the way it's portrayed like they 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 were like here uh viewers come on this this crazy emotional roller coaster with us but then it doesn't really make sense which uh that's how I feel about some of the other things in the second season where I'm like, this does not make any sense. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I feel the same way. Especially totally. in the last there episode. are definitely some things in the second season that don't make sense. There are some things about the second season that honestly really annoy me. There are things about the second, se- the way the second season is written that are like tropes that get used in television that I really dislike because I think that they're dumb and lazy, but <sighs> There's some good stuff in there. I cried in just about every episode. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Like, I for real, like, got choked up or, like, wept in, like, several episodes, sometimes at more than one point in the mm-hmm. episode. And so as much as, you know, there's obviously some stuff that doesn't really line up. And there's some stuff, uh, you know, like the, like a lot of the, a lot of the reason why I get emotional about it was well, a couple of reasons, I guess. I guess we're done talking about the first season, right? <laughs> End of the first season, kind of dumb. Why is the money in the cans? That's, how did he even get it in there? Right. Bah, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but they're going to open a restaurant. But, it's going to be called The Bear. And now we're on the second season. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Let's move this story along. Yeah, and like, you know, just to sort of sum up my feelings about the first season, I was really excited to watch the second season, regardless of whether I thought like some of the plot lines were a little bit nonsensical, because really, I don't know, like they're doing a really great job with the characters. I I find Carmi to be a little bit too all over the place and unlikable for how much people in the show react like they really want him to succeed. Like, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe, maybe Mm -hmm. I'm just like too pessimistic or something, but like, yeah, I, you know, like I don't really feel bad when he's not succeeding because he's doing that to himself. And I don't really understand why everyone else in the show is like really, you know, wants like I get that there is family and stuff like they have a different relationship, obviously, to him than I do. But like but I mean, like, Mm -hmm. I, I don't really understand why everyone around him is so supportive when he winds up treating them so poorly a lot of the time. You know, like I, I just right, and yeah, and the finale of the second season is like the best example of that, where it's like, yeah, it's right. I I get that maybe that's the point. Like other character, especially Richie, like openly accuses him of basically self sabotage and being like his mother Donna, 
um, not wanting to succeed and not wanting the love that people are giving him. It seemed a little, I don't know, it seemed a little bit incongruous though, like because his whole journey through the first season and a half was like trying to build himself or climb out of that kind of mire of, uh, yeah, mm-hmm. family drama and trauma and guilt and stuff like that. And then so at the end of this, the, in the season two finale, where he just like almost willingly just jumps back <laughs> into that pit. It's like, what? Why did we yeah. do this? <laughs> What's the? <laughs> and I get that that can be the point. That can be the point for someone with that kind of trauma. But it's like, okay, I guess... We're on to the third season. I'm just going to watch the same thing again, or and hope for yeah. this. Hope for I, a I different like outcome. For me, like, that's how I felt at the emotionally. End of the, the end of the second season, yeah, it was frustrating, but it made sense. Like much more, like you know, I'm much more on the side of, oh yeah, like this is yeah. real. You know, like of course it's difficult for him to step outside of like Wait. his like the trauma and anxiety and things like that that he is like so that are so much a part of his personality because it's his whole identity it's his family it's his work it's like you know as much as it's as much as it's negative and traumatic it's really his comfort zone you know and being with claire or having a relationship Mm -hmm. a close relationship with another human being is really not where he's comfortable right and and i think that i think that they're you know, trying to illustrate that. Right. And I think that that's real. I really dislike how they went about it, but we'll yep. get to that. <laughs> I, well, I mean, okay, so we're going to, oh, sure, not, we can talk about it. I, we'll get to I it. Just, like, we're um, not going to talk about I, it. And we're not going to do like a whole to... season synopsis or anything like that. <laughs> but it's sort of like, I, I no. feel like fully talking about it now, kind of like, I don't know, it's a, it, it's a lot about how I feel about the season. And I feel like it's like showing my cards too soon if we're going to talk about this for another 45 minutes. But mm-hmm. Okay, well, I've got to pivot then. Um, if you, I was really frustrated with Carmi's story and arc and some of the... <laughs> some of the specific plot things that made um, his story... Uh, some of the specific plot things that made his story. But another character story... I loved, absolutely loved, and thought was yeah fantastic. Uh, Richie's Richie's arc was amazing. You you the the first season did a really good job of um, at the start presenting him as this kind of loudmouth, mm-hmm. insecure bully, basically. Then you start to learn more about his personal life, about his daughter, uh, his ex wife. Um, you start to be compassionate and. Um, see that he's actually he's a, a a troubled guy and he's acting this way for uh for for very specific reasons and then in the second season especially the episode forks where um carmy sets up a stage for richie at um th- this apparently is the restaurant that they've been talking about the whole time the the quote best restaurant in the world that carmy worked at um sets up a stage for richie there um and he goes through a really dramatic uh it's pretty (laughs) quick it's kind of rushed but it's a a really dramatic change and and fairly believable within the world of um the show um and then to see him kind of take that experience and then work the expo station on the friends and family night at the bear it was a, a 
are really um, emotional, yeah. believable, well thought out. I totally agree. I, I um, like the trajectory. I, for I the did. It, it bothered me. I think maybe a little bit more how quickly that transition happened when he went for his stage because I think he was only like, I, I, yeah, it was one week. Like, yes. uh, <laughs> he was there for one week. <laughs> yeah. So that's not super believable, but not just that like a one week stage would allow him to do everything that he wound up doing there like that, that like practically is not super believable, but it's more like, you know, is, you know, like is his entire perspective going to change like that quickly? It seems, seems unlikely, but, but I mean, he was obviously like very inspired and Mm -hmm. I think like what really helped me with it was like the, like at the end of the episode forks there's like a moment where he walks in he's walking through like the back of the kitchen i think he's like just finishing up his day he's he's like following someone to like hand in his uniform or something like that and he walks through the kitchen and olivia coleman is there she's playing like the i guess executive mm-hmm. chef of the restaurant yeah, i think that... the character's name is terry am i right right chef terry that's right yeah Oh, right. Which is interesting because they kind of like they I I think that they use like a gender neutral name to make it feel like the chef is going to be a man. And then it's Olivia Coleman. She's like this very soft spoken, gentle feeling character that like is just in the back of the kitchen while no one else is around, just like uh, cleaning mushrooms. And Richie walks into the kitchen and I guess knows who she is and speaks with her for a few moments and they, and they talk about the restaurant and they talk about her and they, I don't, maybe they don't even talk about Carmi. Um, but it's sort of implied that they're saying some things that are, are reflective of like the time that she spent with Carmi and the time that Richie has spent with Carmi. Mm-hmm. And I think they do mention him by name. She says that I know Carmi. And at the end of the conversation, right, she, says, she says, say hi to him for me or whatever. Yeah. 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 That scene, like, yeah, I don't know that, that just having that moment in there really made his change seem more believable to me. It was like a real human yeah. moment. And like, yeah, that was, <laughs> that was one of the, there, there were several moments in that episode where I, I got I started feeling emotional, but like I was like mm. crying during that scene. I, yeah, I don't know. Something about like, I don't know, something about Olivia Coleman being like the perfect sort of person to have there in that moment. Like, right. she's so, she's such a good actor. She's so good at delivering this like, I don't know, like, um, she infused the entire scene with a sense of calm. Yeah. yeah. It's crazy actually. Like it was, uh, yeah. Like the way that she approached it was just so perfect. And yeah, it really, it really got me. And, um, it really like having her there lent a lot of weight to the scene for me because just the, the other things that I know her from are just so much kind of more emotionally, mature and emotionally serious or something like that. Like not that the bear isn't Mm -hmm. at times and obviously they understand that it is. And that's why they would, you know, approach her to come and play this part. You know, they needed someone who was going to lend gravitas to that scene, you know, who you could look at them and be like, Oh yeah, (laughs) that's the chef of this restaurant. Like, 
you know. So then, okay, is the, to me, it was a, a crazy juxtaposition because you know the abuse that Carmi endured there and the trauma he has from it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and even the, so not Chef Terry, but I guess her Chef de Cuisine. Yeah. I can't remember the character's name, but he, like, you, you sit on, on sit in on staff meetings and pre-service um, briefings with the sh- the current chef de cuisine. And, like, he is a... He's abusive. He is, uh, he's a bully. Yeah. yeah he's extremely, uh, like, yeah, abusive. Um, and so that disconnect between Chef Terry and her chef de cuisine and all the people who we have met who have been previous chef de cuisines there, like... How do you make sense of that? Is it like, how could someone who is as calm, quiet, listening, generous, kind as Chef Terry that you see in the mushroom peeling scene, Mm -hmm. but then like you look at who she has managing her kitchens and they are assholes. Like what, (laughs) is that intentional? Is that supposed to be like, you know, this is Alice Waters and this is how she behaves and but this is how what it takes to run the kitchen? Or is that kind of like an oversight and an inconsistency in the story and casting and No, and I, like I think it's I think it's intentional. And I, I think it I think it's consistent. Like Well then she's a hypocrite, right? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> she is. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But so is everyone that works there. And and that's not necessarily like avoidable you know and i think that's why like i I think that's what the show is about you know like Hmm. it's like this this like um anxiety and trauma and aggression and bully bullying atmosphere is like part and parcel to pushing people to the extent that is required to get them to do this extraordinary thing and Hmm there is like some there is like a positive side to doing the thing that is extraordinary and it's providing people with this experience but it's like trampling on the people who are providing that experience and in most cases they're happy to be trampled on because they feel like the trade off for the for the like um the satisfaction that they get from providing the experience is worth the trauma and bullying that they have to endure to make that happen. And like, Mm -hmm. clearly that's not true or good. Like no one should have to endure those things, but I think it's the reality of the business. And that's kind of what the show is trying to show. And, and in the case of chef Terry, like I, I think that that's, I think it's kind of par for the course. Like, I think that's a very real, like, I think that like, if, for instance, you know, like, let's say, well, I'll, I'll use Noma as an example because I have firsthand experience with it. Um, mm-hmm. And that way it's not just like totally hypothetical, but I think that I, I think that this applies to a lot of like high end fine dining restaurants. And that's that like, you know, for, for, Noma for Renee, like there's this journey from like when Renee started Noma and basically he was just a tyrant to like 
him realizing that that's not sustainable for him or for his team to trying to fix that to spending years decade and and more trying to fix that and he can sort of fix it for himself and he can like change his perspective and i imagine that's a lot of the journey that terry had to go through to get from being um you know someone who is uh working the way way through that industry to becoming the chef at like one of the best restaurants in the world. You know, I imagine that's part of her journey too. enduring all of that Mm -hmm. and then having, and then being in a position where, you know, she cared so much about it that she had to bully the people who were working for her and then realizing that, you know, that wasn't going to be sustainable for her and then trying to move past that, but still her restaurant having to hire all these people who have been through that system and that's how they work and that's how they understand and relate to the restaurant. And, and like, she's also aware of it too. And, you know, there's only so much that she can curb that type of behavior if she wants to hire the type of people that she knows are going to be able to deliver the experience that she wants to deliver, you know, like it is, it's Mm. hypocritical and, but it's necessary and it's like a, not a, a, it's not an easily solvable problem. But I think that like on top of that and like for me, why that scene had such emotional weight is because for me, I, when I watch her calmly peeling mushrooms like that and understand the intensity that's going on in her restaurant, like I see those things. And then I also see mm-hmm. that like throughout her long career of like being a cook probably in several places and being bullied and you know and being a woman is like makes that an even harder journey like you really have to prove that you know you're just as tough as anyone else which is just like some another bit of bs in our industry um Mm -hmm. and then but but through all that like enduring that because the satisfaction that you get from the calm moments of your job when you're doing something that is like, you know, you're working with a piece of food that you really love and you're doing something to it that's transformative and you, you know, and you're just like, you know, in a flow state doing it, whether you're doing it quickly or, you know, like you're just, you know, you're connected to the work that you're doing and it feels, you know, like you get a lot of satisfaction from it. And so even in those like, crazy moments there's always like you still always have to like cut the carrots that you need for service right and cutting the carrots that you Mm -hmm. need for service is just a job that you know you can do it quickly but but you know it's a job that requires you to like focus and concentrate and just like that's i think you know for people who love to cook that's like the thing that they connect to is like you're doing this thing with your hands, you're transforming something and it's like, you know, a, an ingredient sometimes that you're really like in love with and you just like the the course of doing the job forces you to have to just like connect with that ingredient for if it's five minutes, if it's 10 minutes, if it's two hours, if you know, like whatever it is, you know, mm-hmm. you have to focus on that one thing and, you know, that's what she's doing there. It's probably not necessary for her to do it, but you know, she's there and she wants to be connected to the restaurant and she wants to be connected to those experiences that give her satisfaction. And and that's something that she can enjoy. And, you know, even if now she's like quite a different person and, and is like 
you know, trying to be much more calm and maybe trying to instill that in the people that are leading the other people at her restaurant. It's just like a very real moment where she's just like, it's just her and the mushrooms. She's not like there thinking about all of the additional stresses that are happening. You know, she just is there mm. with the mushrooms and she's happy to show that to Richie and have like a real connection with him, you know? Yeah. To me, like the, the, the real importance that of that scene is, Sorry. oh, that's okay. That's, it is the effect that it had on Richie because it let Richie know that Carmi believes in him and that he has a way with people and that he has a place in the industry and at the bear. Um, I, I think that with your experience and your understanding of that part of the industry, to me, you're reading, like, I think that on the surface level, as the show, they did not do a good job of connecting and reconciling her calm, mm. saint-like <laughs> behavior and everything else that's going on. Like, yeah. I don't think that they were trying to, they didn't do anything from a storytelling point of view or like a, they didn't do anything from a storytelling point of view to make her confront the abuse that's happening in her own kitchen. She was oh, just yeah. like this own, her own little thing, right. peeling mushrooms in the more early morning, whatever it was. So I, I get what you're saying. And yeah. I agree with your observations about industry in terms of like the, again, like the storytelling uh, to me, it was, they didn't, they did nothing to uh, inculcate her in, <laughs> in the abuse. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I, I agree kitchen, with that but... for sure. Like they used her as a foil for that abuse instead. Of, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Even though she's ultimately responsible for it because she's the chef owner of the establishment. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I think like, like, I mean, I hope that like, and I guess we'll find out, but like, I hope that the show is using Carmi's character for that. You know, like, right, because yes. ultimately, like, you know, if, if if the show is trying to say something about that, like that kind of has to be Carmi's journey, you know, like, yes, he's and we're all hopeful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but again, it's just like he he trounces those uh, expectations at every possible uh, chance, including the the family and friends service in the finale of season two, where he immediately just like d descends right back into screaming at Sydney for letting food get cold and stuff, which I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like it. Oh yeah. They, they shouldn't serve cold food, but like he is a monster yeah. on the line. Like he's not a rational person. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. And I, I don't know, like, again, I think it's unfortunate, but I think it's realistic, mm. you know, like he's stressed not just because of the food, you know, because of right. a lot of things that are going on and he's not very good at managing it. And, you know, he doesn't. <laughs> I think definitely not on a recording about food, but we've talked a little bit about the show, The Walking Dead. And I don't know if you remember, but I was an avid watcher early on. And I know so you were I. an avid yeah. watcher. For longer it, than you it were, got I to think. a point. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Longer than me. I told you, and I don't know if you remember. Um, I had, I stopped watching because I was like, I get it. I understand that this is probably how it would go down and people would treat each other this way. But how many times am I going to sit down on a Sunday night and devote an hour of my life to watching people behave this way? Like yeah. I know I'm not I'm not saying it's wrong. No, no. I'm just saying yeah. 
how, what am I, why am I still watching this? And I'm, <laughs> Shale, I'm almost at that point with the bear. Where it's like, I get it. This might be a really good and, and true to life depiction, but like, oh, why am I putting myself through this? Yeah. I, I guess for me overall, the second season was much more inspiring than it was frustrating. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like, let's talk about some of those then. What's uh, tell me some moments or some characters? Yeah, we touched on Richie. Yeah, I think Sydney too. Like her journey in the season is a little bit more disjointed. I think than yes than Richie's. You know, like you don't necessarily get a, a satisfying sort of like positive journey with Sydney. In fact, like by the end of the season, she's in a pretty rough spot. I feel like. Um, yeah, her her victory is a much more <laughs> she she's not one of the lead. Well, sorry, she's not the lead character and she doesn't have the benefit of all of this backstory and trauma. But she has um, a small victory at the end where she did the service. Yeah. And it worked. Sort of. Uh, and of course, and, and her father um, was proud of her. Yeah. She, she's vomiting into a dumpster in a back alley or something. Yeah. But like she did the thing that she set out to do and good on her. Right. Yeah. I, I think the, like what was, I mean, I, I think that like what was inspiring for me about her character was just like, even though she was having trouble connecting with Carmi, who's like her partner. And they did a lot to illustrate the fact that she was having trouble trusting him. And, you know, it went, yes. when she was like going around talking to people about what it's like to to open your own restaurant, like uh, like former chefs of hers and things like that. Every one of them, t- like to a person was like, make sure you get into business with people that you can trust. And then they just juxtapose that like every time with Carmi not answering her calls or like, you right. know, just like brushing off things that she said or whatever. And, you know, like so they made it mm-hmm. very obvious that it was really hard for her to trust Carmi. And really, you know that she shouldn't necessarily really trust him like they kind of want the same thing but he's kind of not giving a shit about her and so it's like you know very frustrating on that level but she's still able to like be inspired about her ideas and understand that she loves food and is good at cooking it and and you know really just keep her focus on those things and doing the best job that she can and the things that you know and the, and then the food that she is working with although it, it's a little less specific i think in the second season than it was in the first season but the food that she's making is like beautiful and you know really comes Definitely. from her own experiences and stuff and they, i think that they do a good job of trying to illustrate that and you know there's that one scene at the in the I, th- I think it's in the, the last episode or in the second last episode where they go through the menu and like a bunch of the dishes are like, you know, uh, are what like uh, dedicated to themselves or their journey or to Mikey and or to the team and like different experiences that they've been through. And I just I found that like really inspiring, um, mm-hmm. you know, it it made it feel very art like you know what they were doing you right. know um it's you know like it really had a perspective and that perspective was their journey and i think that that's you know the what you want to get 
at if you want to do something that's like novel but also like really is going to have uh give people a, a, a an experience that they are going to remember you know is like give them a little bit of yourself is there can can you think of specific examples of things that sydney um you know brought to the table and tested and became a dish that was served at the friends and family dinner it's it's kind of hard because i think things were a lot you know less specific in the second season about mm-hmm. what she was working on and what wound up on the menu because one of the things that happened partway through the second season is they were working on what they were calling the chaos menu yeah that was just like whatever we like whatever we're working on whatever is exciting that's what we're putting on but then there was a change that was mentioned where like Carmi started having these ideas of like focusing on kind of Italian American and like his, you know, dishes from his family. Right. And then by the time we got to the uh, last episode and they're doing their first service, it seemed like that's all that was on the menu. Cause there was seven fishes, which is like a, obviously a, a callback to their Italian Christmas feast. Right. Um, there was focaccia. Uh, there was a bistecca. There was a cannoli with mortadella foam and pistachios and stuff. Like it just seemed like, and I, I don't remember if they address it directly, but it seemed like, oh no, this is like entirely about Carmi and his family huh? and not about Sydney. That's, and like, she was still there, like doing expo um, and, and really running the kitchen. But w- from what I saw of their service, it was like, this is not, it, it, it's a story about Carmi. The, the food is a story about Kirby. Hmm. That's interesting. It's not the impression that I got. Like, I, I, I feel like, yeah, you know, like as you're talking about it, I'm like, yeah, yeah, maybe that's true. I, I don't know though. Like, I, I think like, I don't know, I guess I would have to go back and watch it again. But I think that like mm-hmm. the impression that I got was that, yeah, like a lot of these dishes wound up being like these Italian American dishes or something, but they were like infused with, the collective creativity of the team and not just like, definitely, you know, yeah. um, and, and so, but, you know, maybe what happened and they didn't really show it or maybe they did show it and, and I didn't really catch it is that, you know, maybe Sydney was like tailoring the menu to be more like what she thought Carmi would want, but that, mm-hmm. you know, she was also making the dishes her own or something mm-hmm. because I mean, really mm-hmm. she did all of the dish designs. You know, like practically in the show, d- they never show him yeah, designing a single Carmi dish. The She's the only one that's ever working on the food. She's the one that's like, right. you know, laboring over it at home. And then she's the one that's demoing it at the restaurant for the people that are going to cook it. And she hired mm-hmm. the cooking team. And, you know, like, so, yeah, I I hear what you're saying. Like, yeah, w- like what they're what's on the menu sounds very Italian, but I don't like, I, yeah, it didn't, wasn't the impression that I got that like, you know, by the end of the season, I think that they were trying to say that this is like a collective representation of what we think this team wants to put out and not mm. like, Oh, we all have to cook Carmi's food. Like that's not how it felt to right. me. Oh yeah. Totally. Yeah. And I think also like, maybe they don't really say this explicitly, but kind of the same thing where it's like, well, that is actually a pretty realistic uh, representation of what would happen in industry in a restaurant that's shooting for this caliber where it's like Carmi is the executive chef and yeah. he has ideas 
and Sydney is his CDC and she executes all of them. So yeah, it's yeah. It, definitely she did the work, but it was interesting, like, and sorry, other members of the team definitely feel invested and in that they have been, they've put original ideas out. Actually, I thought Marcus maybe had more ideas yeah. and contribution in that way than Sydney did. Um, but yeah, at the end of the day, it's like Carmi is the face and the story or whatever, however you want to put it. Right. Um, even though he is, of course, locked in the walk-in, <laughs> sorry, stuck and trapped in the walk-in. <sighs> Man. I actually, before <laughs> Uh, okay, fine, Alan. Sorry, I'll talk about it. You dragged it out of me. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it so um, much. I hate it so much that he's locked in the walk-in. Like, it's so dumb and lazy and stupid. And, like, yes. it, it's just so poorly written. Like, anyone that has ever worked in a kitchen and probably, I would say, the majority of people who haven't, like, would <laughs> would know that, like, it's not that hard to get somebody if somebody's locked in a fridge like you can just take the latch off like you yes. can unscrew the latch off the door of the fridge and he's free in like 45 seconds like you just take a Phillips head screwdriver and you take part of the latch off and you open the door like it's not that big a deal but like it's this huge deal and it's destroying their service and everyone is like freaking out about it and then and then on top of that like and, and I understand why they literally fridge him for the episode or whatever you know like it's they like you know put him in timeout so that he has to like be with himself and his own thoughts in the middle of this yeah. like you know thing that he's supposed to be in control of that is falling apart like <clears throat> like i understand why they did that and like that makes sense but you have to find a real way to do it like i, I just couldn't <laughs> suspend my disbelief that much and then the the very ending, like where, you know, he's what first he's talking to Sydney through the door or no, he's talking to uh, Tina. Tina through the door. And then yeah. and he has kind of and like then all of a sudden Tina is gone. <laughs> right. And then he's talking with Richie. But he's still talking. <laughs> well, no, but then then it's Richie, right? First, it's I, Tina. I don't then it's remember, Richie. But he has like a really big blowout argument with Richie through the door. And then Richie leaves and he's just still talking. It's like it's like the worst 70s sitcom trope where like a person is talking in a room and they think they're talking to one person, but really they're talking right. to another person and they don't know who they're talking to. It's like, yes, it's it's like and they reveal the, something. Yeah. And know. they reveal something private and then something really bad happens. It's like the the plot of every single episode of Three's Company for anyone who's ever seen that show. It's like, you know, there's a there's a communication misunderstanding because somebody's talking and they don't know who they're talking to because there's a door in the way. Like <laughs> it, it's it's just so it also lazy sounds to like me. Maybe something from Shakespeare. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's very Shakespearean, I guess. Yeah. That yeah. whole like Lady Macbeth thing or whatever. She's like, or even just like the confusion that makes Romeo and Juliet kill themselves. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But, but it is dumb. Like on a from a for a show that's supposed to be so realistic. It was my recollection, and I I might not be right. He has the blowout with Richie. He's and then later on he's talking to Tina yeah. and then somehow Tina is gone and he's still just talking, talking to himself, and like talking, this little saying all these like soliloquy. deep private things that you would never say. Yeah, and then all of a sudden his girlfriend Claire is there and he, you know, basically says, "Oh, he, 
he says, uh, you know, I should never have gotten a girlfriend because look at me now. Right. Except he doesn't say it like that. He says it in this very vague way, but then she also takes it as like a direct kind of. Yeah. 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 It was, I I didn't like how, how it happened. I didn't like how it was written. I didn't believe it. I thought it was really dumb, which is unfortunate because I understand what they're trying to do. I just feel like, and I, and I don't know, maybe it's really hard to do in like a, 45 minute episode of television to have all that happen and you know like it's, it's tricky i understand I, i'm not i'm not a tv writer i'm not trying to say that that's an easy job but man it just felt like compared to a lot of the rest of the season it just felt really lazy to me the okay i know that people build out kitchens all different kinds of ways and sometimes you don't have a budget and you got to bootstrap stuff and you know macgyver construction stuff but like I have never just the mechanics of the door latch. If the outside breaks, there is always an independently operated uh, push handle on the inside of the cooler. Like even fridges that I've seen that are like 50 years old. (laughs) Because accident, even, even if the outside is locked with a padlock, there is usually, you're usually able to open the door from the inside because that's a real possibility that someone would get locked into a walk-in freezer over a weekend and die yeah and so like at nate and i know that this is like a fancy kitchen but like i i I think this is common everywhere like you can always open the door from the inside there's always a latch there's always something even that (laughs) like i said even if the outside is locked how you can open i I don't i've never seen that it's it's a uh, I'll send you some pictures. Okay, yeah, please do. Like in places where there's actual walk-in freezers and someone could die if they were locked in a freezer That's over every the weekend. Like freezer. It, it was so, there's not even a handle on the inside on the show. It doesn't make any sense. I know. And the fact that at the end of the episode, someone comes with like a jigsaw or yeah. something to oh, cut him yeah, out of the- Oh yeah, they're using like, an angle the- <laughs> grinder to cut him out. Oh yeah, I didn't even mention that because it's so ridiculous. But like, yeah, all you would need is a screwdriver. Uh, yeah, like- once you once you like once you suspend your disbelief enough to think that oh okay they don't have a knob on the inside of their fridge because it's what from the <laughs> 1800s okay fine yeah. sure okay i guess i believe it what how old is the city of chicago uh yeah so okay maybe <laughs> then then like then you're like Oh, okay. Nobody in the restaurant has ever seen a screwdriver. Okay, maybe I can believe that. Um, okay, fine. Sure. And then the guy Maddie comes Madison with an angle there. grinder and he's cutting through. He's not even cutting the latch of the door. He's like cutting no. through the door of the fridge to get inside. I was just like, what is and happening? And sitting there, you know, on directly on the other side of the door while sparks are flying. Oh, yeah. I'm sure they no were like, oh, this no will be such like- a cool shot. You know, the sparks coming down and I was just like, ugh, I'm so mad right now. And I don't think like uh, normally I check myself and I'm like, okay, yeah, Shale, but like, you know, not everybody knows that, you know, not everybody knows that you can easily get into a walk-in, you know? But like who no, who in the general public believes that off. you need yeah. to cut the door with an angle grinder? Like what the it's just yeah, you know. Like it seemed so absurd to me that I was just like really taken out of it. Yes. Yeah. But, but like I was more upset by the like 
acute miscommunication between him and Claire than I was by the whole thing with the door. Like I, I just, yeah. you know, that, that to me seemed like something that deserved better than just like this, like dumb sitcom miscommunication piece of mm-hmm. dialogue, you know, like, yeah, I like, I don't mind the circumstance. I don't mind that. Like that, like in that moment, Carmi is like having doubts he obviously doesn't really believe in himself to be able to pull off being in a relationship at that moment. And there are a lot of reasons right. why. Like, I, I can get that about the character, but just, like, to put him behind a door and he doesn't know he's talking to her and then confesses everything, I was just like, can't, can't we just do this in a real way? Like, can't, can't, like <laughs> can't he get out of the fridge and then go and talk to her and break up, to break up with her? You know? Like, I, right. I just... Man, it, it felt so false and so easy and so i don't know yeah contrived yeah contrived i just yeah. i didn't didn't like it at all <sighs> yeah so kind of left a bad taste in my mouth honestly like there were some things like that in the first season two where i was like okay this is a dumb tv trope but they're surrounding it with such great character stuff that like i don't really mm-hmm. care but yeah that one really hit hard for me because i was like this is like the this is like the whole season right here and they're relying on this really dumb trope like they should be breaking this trope you know like yes should be obvious to anyone that's working on this show that they should be like using this moment to break this trope not to just succumb to it or whatever but Mm -hmm. i you know it didn't really overall i think um you know take away from my enjoyment like there's so many amazing moments in the season that i that i really loved and i'm really looking forward to the third season and i really hope that they do something to correct what they how it ended in the third season like i hope they don't like do the whole third season where they won't like where carmy and claire won't talk to each other because they're both being weird or something like that that would really annoy me i was wondering actually if they did, did you watch Mad Men show? Uh, yeah, I did. It's been a while. I don't remember a ton about it, but yeah, I watched the whole show. One of the interesting things that Mad Men did, especially in later seasons, was that a season would end with something like a cliffhanger, not not like in a really dramatic way, but something right. like that. It was like, oh, I wonder how it's gonna work out. Um, and then when they got to the next season, they would jump ahead in time, right? And and you would slowly learn like how things were resolved or how they proceeded or whatever, but they were pretty, yeah, kind of cheeky in that way where it was like, we're not yeah, going to just we're, like, now we're, yeah. we're six months later and guess what? We figured it out. <laughs> and I was, I was wondering if that might make sense for the bear, but yeah, um, I kind of hope so. Like, I kind of hope they start the third season and Carmi and Claire are just together. Like <laughs> that would be better. Yeah. I think, you know, like, and as opposed to like Carmi still in the, <laughs> yeah yeah third season getting the third season they cut the they use an angle grinder to cut all the way through the door and the door still won't come off and then they have to yeah. bring in the, a crane and lift the, the entire life, walk-in yeah. out of the building <laughs> to get carmy out and then the whole third season is about rescuing carmy from the walk-in that's it's yeah. basically what it felt like in the last episode to me. I was like, how can they make a whole episode of rec- rescuing someone from a place that is not <laughs> in any way inaccessible? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Tell me this, Alan. How do you feel about, like, I feel like one of the main hallmarks of the bear 
is that like it's it's like intense anxious moments are like some of the most you know um intense things that have ever been put on tv like it's you know like it's so uh it's so there's so much going on in those moments when it's like so intense and that's i think like when when you hear people talk about it that's sort of like the thing that they latch on to as like why the show is like good and different and why it's why it's like I don't know, making a mark is because of like the intensity that they bring to these like scenes that are like supposed to be very stressful or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Like, what do you think about that, Alan? Uh, yeah, that's the thing. That's one of the things that makes uh, some of the most memorable episodes. And so in the first season, there was this kind of nightmare service mm-hmm. that kind of started because they started taking online orders at the same time as they got a write-up in a newspaper and things get so busy and a lot of uh, interpersonal um, things come to a head. Uh, and then they have, a, it, in some ways, a kind of analogous episode in the second season, which is actually a flashback to a Christmas dinner mm-hmm. uh, years prior. Uh, and the episode's called Feast of the Seven Fishes. And they somehow... It is? I thought it was just called Fishes. Oh, maybe. Sorry. I don't know. Um, It's, uh, I don't know what, it's 45 minutes of stress uh, in in terms of the, everything about it from the dialogue to the way that it's shot. Um, It's shot in like this kind of like, uh, because it's a memory, I guess, it's shot in this almost like this retro film kind of like it almost looks like old Kodak, like oversaturated Mm -hmm. film and it's kind of grainy a little bit. All of the shots are extremely close like on people's faces Very and tight dialogue handheld. is being yeah. cut in and out um and yeah it's uh it's difficult to watch to be honest like it's mm-hmm. it's uh for a number of reasons but it yeah induces stress in the viewer in a way that i can't think of another especially for that long yeah for a 40 minute or whatever it was episode and for it to be ratcheted again and again until this final scene at the dinner table um, with some really great guest performances by Bob Odenkirk and John Mulaney and Jamie uh, Lee Curtis. Curtis. And um, yeah, it was difficult to watch in the best possible way. (laughs) It was very very well done, but yeah, it was uh, really, really stressful. Yeah. I, so I basically binge watched the second season up until that episode and then i watched mm-hmm. the first 10 minutes of that episode and just turned it off it was you know like I, I was i think it was late when i was watching it or something and i was kind of tired and but you know it was a lot you know and it's yeah. so intense and it just dumps you right into this situation and you know like expects you to catch up and expects you to catch you know like figure out who everybody is and, you know, like it really doesn't do anything to, you know, like part of part of like making it feel intense for the viewer is like, you know, just dumping you into this situation and giving you little explanation and little context and just dumping you in the middle of really intense conversations and having you have to like make sense of it. Mm-hmm. Um, it took me like two more tries after that to get through that episode and get on to the rest of the season. Like I right. did not have a good time watching that episode. No. And I understand that that's kind of the point, but 
I don't know. And and it's and I'm not saying it's like a bad episode of television. Like it's certainly interesting. Like it's certainly different from most stuff that's out there and really well done and amazing performances. Like I, I totally agree. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I would also say that like without that episode, season two of The Bear is not nearly as good. And it's not necessarily no. because of the quality of that episode, but they really use like they, they really pack that episode full of things that they need to like to to be understood about the characters to make really emotionally powerful moments throughout the rest of the season. And they really use that to good effect. And yes. And so like, I, you know, it, I understand why it's there. I think it's like really important that it's there. I think it's a really amazing episode of TV. I found it like very difficult to watch. And yes. I, I don't know, like, I mean, that's cool. I, I understand that that's kind of the show that they're trying to make that like they're, they're making an effort to do that a little bit in, in every season, mm-hmm. like to sprinkle in this like crazy intensity um, you know, and that's kind of what they're known for now. And I feel like if they didn't do that, then people would be like, oh, this show is boring all of a sudden or something. But right. like, yeah, it, it was I don't know, man, it's tough. And I don't like watching. It. I, I didn't really like the really tough episode, like the really stressful episode in the first season either. I mean, I guess maybe it hits a little too close to home. And and I guess mm-hmm. for me, like the Christmas, the Christmas episode in the second season, it didn't hit as close to home in that way like that isn't really what my family christmas dinners are are like Um, you're not a bizarro i guess not yeah exactly i i think you know like obviously you know it's not always perfect and sometimes there's conflict and stuff but it's not like you know this like relentless intensity of like yeah anxiety and hatred you know or whatever but but anyway yeah i just found it like pretty over the top and watching it was like difficult and kind of took me out of like the flow that I was in, in terms of watching the show and enjoying it, you know? Right. So to me, besides the like technical display of like between the writing and the way it's shot of inducing that feeling in the viewer, there was actually some really important things, um, in, in the fishes episode. Um, so for instance, um, our our understanding of Carmi's trauma came mostly from his experience in industry and from his brother's suicide. Yeah, and from his before the suicide, his basically uh, estrangement from his brother. Um, but then to understand that it's actually much more complicated than that. That also he has this trauma from his own family and especially his mother Donna. That was one important piece for me. Um, Carmi's sister Sugar. I don't know her real name, but they call her Sugar. The episode, the Fishes episode, was really illuminating for her because um, she's always been around, yeah. And she is now effectively one of the managers of the new restaurant, The Bear. We didn't really know very Natalie, much about her besides her right, Natalie. Um, we 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 see her lots, and we know her husband. Um, but to see her relationship with Donna was 
really like that's the first time where I was really interested and understood more about her. Yeah. Like, and to understand that her entire her nickname Sugar, to understand the origin of that name kind of says it all. Where basically it's her mother making fun of her. Yeah. Like she messed something up in the kitchen and she used sugar instead of salt. And now we're twenty years on and everybody still calls her Sugar. And so to understand what that the effect that that has on her, um, it was. <laughs> But it was that was kind of a was, dumb moment, honestly. Yeah, because, because she used a cup of sugar instead of a cup of salt. But a cup of salt, cup of in, salt a gravy? in anything? Are we are talking making, about like? A, were we talking about soup for ten thousand people or what? Yeah, that was one that I like. I obviously picked up on, but like was not. Yeah, gonna... I don't know if Maddie Matheson is like still doing some of the food consultation for that, but like Maddie, nobody yeah. uses a cup of salt for anything, guy, except to make a brine. Yeah. Um. But one one thing in terms of uh, trying to unpack the, say, Carmi's um, history, there were several moments when he's helping his mom in the kitchen. There's several moments where he's helping Donna in the kitchen. Um, and I think they do draw a very direct line between the way that she treats him in a kind of like passive aggressive sarcastic condescending abusive way and the way mm-hmm. that um some of the chefs behave in, in his flashbacks and and in the in the in the in the current time as well so like one one moment where where his mom is asking him something like almost like a mobster like do we have a problem here yeah like yeah. is there a problem right now and she's staring him down and posturing and, and to me like the the language, the body, um, the body posture, like it's to me there that, yeah, it was a very clear line between the culture of intimidation and authority. And, um, yeah, that was, so I, I think there, there were, it wasn't just, uh, the, the whole fishes episode wasn't just a gimmick. No, no, no. Also <laughs> the fishes episode, we meet, um, Richie's now ex-wife. Yeah. And it's it's Britta from Community. So in the first season, we saw Jeff Winger from Community um, as the abusive uh, CDC, and then we saw Britta from Community in the second okay. season. So I'm hoping that they're slowly working towards like a Community reunion. <laughs> and like I haven't watched in season of three for me to. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. Like in season three, oh, never mind. I won't make any community jokes then, never mind. <laughs> yeah, there are several like flashbacks to the Fishes episode within episodes of the following, like within following episodes um, in the season. Like, especially when Carmi's mm-hmm. like breaking down in the cooler or whatever, they flash back to that episode quite a bit. Right. And I, th- I thought that that was like, I don't know, it was just, it was good. It was good that they laid out that material and then we're able to really good make good use of it. And they actually kind of insinuate that you're seeing the flashback because Carmi is telling Claire about it in in the right. I think oh, it's yeah, the that's very right. next episode. Like Carmi says, "Oh man, I was telling." Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was actually really nice too. Mom... That was a nice touch. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. He he's like, yeah. The the flashback episode was actually him relating this story about the craziest christmas dinner that they ever had where his mom drives the car through the wall of the house into the house or whatever mm-hmm. yeah john I really mulaney's like that. grace john mulaney's grace <laughs> was amazing is 
it was really fantastic yeah. and such an odd calm moment yeah. that you think maybe you hope desperately is going to um resolve a bunch of things and like kind of steer the family dinner in the right direction but then it just like just blows up goes so sideways after it's yeah but it but such a nice moment um, uh, yeah, I was kind of wondering why John Mulaney was in the episode up until that point. And then I was like, oh, wow. Like, they mm -hmm. got the right person mm -hmm. for the right job to come in and have this moment. And it just like, yeah, yeah, that was heartbreaking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, one thing, just because I've harped on so many, so many things that bothered me about what one thing that the show has done really well is it's kind of gleaned the hospitality industry for these little bits of they're almost like lore now they're like little bits of mythology they're stories that were published in different books or magazines that have just become common knowledge to hospitality workers right and they've just kind of like taken dozens of them and just put them all over in the episode into this other kind of like it's not it's kind of the world we live in. And sometimes they mention restaurants by name. Sometimes they make up imaginary restaurants and, and all the rest. Mm -hmm. But they're really, it's really great to see those little stories where it's like, oh, actually, I think I know the origin of that. But it still just makes perfect sense within their world. Totally. Um, and so going back to my, my favorite episode of season two was Forks, where Richie's working, um, has has the stage at uh, Chef Terry's restaurant. Um, and they do a really great example of this where um, he's starting to understand service and his own like um, talent with people and making them feel welcome. Um, and so there's this moment where he overhears a table um, where someone has been visiting Chicago. It's been a very busy schedule for them. They really wanted to have authentic Chicago deep dish, mm -hmm. but instead they're dining at, you know, the best restaurant in the world. And, oh man, I have to fly out tomorrow. So he overhears this and then they, they rush out to his, uh, to Richie's favorite deep dish place. And I think it's called Pequod's or something. Yeah. And they like bring the pizza into the restaurant and the, uh, CDC does some fancy plating for it and they present it to this guest as a surprise. Um, and that's, a uh it's taken from a real life story from 11 Madison park um where someone overhears a similar comment they're in new york someone's upset that they're gonna be able they're gonna be leaving new york and they're not gonna have the quote dirty water hot dog like a hot dog stand hot dog right um before they leave and will guadara or someone who works for will guadara who was the partner at emp at the time like rushes out and buys the hot dog and brings it into the fancy restaurant um so yeah, lots of little nods to real life story. Actually, later in the episode Forks, Richie is reading Will Guadara's book. Uh, oh, really? Hospitality. Yeah, that's funny. so they're very they're they're real stories, but that they, they've just kind of like, um, <laughs> in a good way, co opted uh, or stolen and taken uh, for for world building purposes in the bear. And I really appreciate that. Yeah, totally. I yeah. There, there are tons of those little things and yes. yeah, like Easter eggs almost if you know a little bit yeah, about totally. the industry. Yeah, yeah. Like the, one of the big takeaways from uh, Richie's talk with Chef Terry was that, was that sign that she had made to put under all the clocks and it says yeah. every second counts, right? And yeah. that's become kind of like the, 
whatever the the motto for the bear i thought it was going to be let it rip but it turns out it's uh, every, every second, second counts. counts and to me that's a callback to like keller thomas keller famously has um the sign sense of urgency under yeah. all of his clocks in his restaurants but. man like there are so many things that like I, I know i've complained about a few things that i didn't like about the show <laughs> but there are so many things that i really did love about it and that i think they did such a great job of and that it mm-hmm. shows like a self-awareness in the writing that like you rarely see in most shows like that every second counts motto is like just this little piece of you know like when richie starts his stage like they show that sign during the forks episode they show that sign like four or five times and at the beginning of the episode it has a clear meaning and that's that like you know you need to be on it you know like yes it's like you need to bring your intensity otherwise this whole thing is not going to work like every second for every person counts and you need to be responsible for making sure that you make every second that you spend here count you know like yeah. that's the that's the meaning when he sees it for the first time like that's the meaning for him and that's the meaning for the viewer and then by yes. the end of the episode you look at it and it means something completely different it means like yeah. every every second that we can spend connecting with the people that we love and you know is is like precious and sometimes we think we have lots of them and they just get taken away you know and like that's without explicitly saying anything about that in the episode they like use this like important phrase and change the meaning of it from from the beginning of the episode to the end of the episode and i just thought that was so clever like and it really hit home for me you know and totally i feel like the yeah. show does that a lot and that's what i really appreciate about it which is why when you know when you have that like <laughs> lady Macbeth hiding hiding behind the curtain thing in the last episode i'm just like why like right why yeah. can't we just do something <laughs> smart here you know but <laughs> yeah but okay, yeah I, I, I really i really love that like the, those like little writing things those character things that make so much difference like i really loved um the episode where marcus goes to copenhagen i mean for for several reasons but i found that like to some extent i found marcus's stage experience a little bit more realistic than richie's you know you know like i I don't know what the restaurant was that he was working at it was like (laughs) It's like One kind of the thing. only okay. only the two of them working there, which I, that part I didn't really understand. But like just like him coming in and having no idea but having to produce and this guy yeah. who he's working with understanding that he needs this person to be there with him to do what they need to do and pulling him through that. Like it felt mm-hmm. felt much more realistic to me. And it also like the little moments that they showed with Marcus with him like tasting things that he had never tasted before and being like, oh, like i see there's like this whole world of textures and tastes that like you know that i i have no exposure to and i i can just go off in a hundred directions from here and then marcus being really inspired by that and then also Mm -hmm. marcus having this like really 
like intense human experience there like maybe it's the first time he's traveled overseas or something like that and then Mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. he rescues this man who's like caught in a fence who doesn't speak any english and they have this like sort of connection but Mm -hmm. you know it's like a sketchy situation and he doesn't know what to do and he doesn't know how to help but he just does what he can and it's obviously very uncomfortable like there's just like a little moment that you know, really indicates what it's like to be outside of your comfort zone and outside of the culture that you're comfortable in. And Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I really enjoyed that episode and I found it really inspiring. There were, yeah, the, (laughs) I I hate that I'm gravitating towards, uh, it's almost nitpicky, but yeah, the, the, the feel of the time in Copenhagen, it it really is like two men in a room making pastries (laughs) Yeah, when like a, they, a, apparently they're at like a very busy well-regarded restaurant but you never see anyone else i mean are they or Um, are they at a restaurant that this kind of young chef is just like it's he's trying to get it off the ground or something i kind of got the impression that they were like that this was his restaurant the the guy the the, like and and that it was like a new place or something I could I could be wrong about that, but that was kind of the impression that I got is that like he was trying to start this restaurant. He didn't have really any staff yet or anything, and it was like a really small place, and he was kind of trying to do it on his own. But um, Carmi called him up and was like, "Hey, can I send this guy over?" and uh, and then Marcus shows up, and then he's like, "Oh God, now I have to teach this guy how to cook." I don't know, but it's all it's an entirely dessert restaurant. Uh, yeah yeah i don't know yeah maybe yeah maybe you're right like maybe they're just working in the pastry section of of a restaurant but then nobody else is around so that seemed really weird but yeah and so to me in the second season there was that uh internship in copenhagen for marcus but also the time when tina and ibrahim are at the cia yeah man i felt so bad for ibrahim yeah He, he speaking of someone pushed out of their comfort zone yeah um but the the way that those two um, storylines were shot, and I'm sure it was like, you know, budget and timeline and stuff, but they they both felt very empty and did not have the energy that I would associate, right. like the, the hmm. busyness and bodies and energy that I would associate with, a, you know, a busy restaurant and a culinary school. Like they, yeah, there was a lot of like shots of just tina in a kitchen at culinary school with no one else there which would never happen yeah and yeah yeah i Um, did feel that way about the culinary school bits i was like oh they're obviously you know like they can't fully build out sets for a culinary school so they're trying to do this with what they have i didn't feel that way about the copenhagen stuff but i i don't know like i i think that's just because i enjoy those like when i enjoy the quiet moments of the show so much more that i'm just like i don't know more sucked in by it i'm not really thinking about it too analytically mm-hmm. but i did i don't know to me it made sense in my head like why they were there like I, the other thing that i was thinking and i think maybe i remember thinking this while i was watching it was that like they're the pastry and they're making the bread so they're there at like three in the morning or something when nobody oh, else yeah. is because yep. they have to like proof the bread and stuff and and so right yeah, so that that maybe has something to do with it. And it always seemed like, yeah, he was like, it was always dark when he was like <laughs> going to yeah. or leaving the restaurant. It was always like pitch black out. And I think that's probably because he was working at night or something like that. Oh, I've got an idea for a movie. Um, it's a baker who's a vampire. 
and they chose baking <laughs> because they can work they can be in the wee hours the before the this. Yeah. It's a great idea. Okay. Okay, Alan. What about the food? So we don't really know a lot about the food, right? Not so much. I mean, there are there is a lot of it's not necessarily the food at their restaurant that we see a lot of or is described. It's a lot of food outside the restaurant. Like there's like that meal that Sydney has on her own when Carmi's supposed to come and meet her. And she orders like everything off the breakfast menu at this place and then just has to sit there and eat it by herself. Mm-hmm. It's like a breakfast sandwich and I can't remember what else. Um Okay, I, I have a web page that has like a bunch of the dishes that were featured. So I can go through them, Alan. You can tell me what you thought. What do you think about that? Okay. I remember the potato chip omelet. That's the big like one. That. That's like the viral one. Oh, is that right? Okay. Yeah. That kind of like blew up on the on the internet. Which yeah, looked amazing. What when when Sydney told Carmi about the omelet, what did he say about it? Oh, I don't know. Oh, uh, he had like a one word reaction. Is like you know that not impressed oh that's fire or something oh yeah i think he's oh no no he was impressed he was like he's like oh, oh yeah okay. that that would be fire or something like that that's, pretty funny. that's what the kids say that is what the kids say that's what carmy says apparently um yeah that omelet was fire i would eat that omelet mm-hmm. um there was like a radicchio grapefruit salad you remember that no i remember that one looked pretty good that was one of the first dishes i think that Sydney was like testing or something. Mm-hmm. It was like in one of the first couple of episodes. It was like one of the dishes that she was testing, I think. A cheese stuffed pasta and brown butter with pesto. I don't really remember that. That's like every fancy Italian restaurant though. Mm. The donut. Marcus's donuts. Marcus's donut. Yeah. So there was a bunch of stuff in the first season about the donuts. He was like trying yes. to make these donuts and it wasn't going well and Carmi hated it and Carmi was telling him not to waste his time on it, but he was coming in and working in off hours to try and make these donuts. He was also trying to make donuts during the chaos service of the first season, which was <laughs> another thing where it's just like, <sighs> come on. <laughs> but oh, sorry, was there a donut uh, in the second season? Yeah. So one of the desserts on the final menu for the bear was the donut and apparently it's called sydney's donut oh marcus and sydney are gonna get married right uh i don't know man (laughs) i kind of hope not because it doesn't really seem like she's interested in marcus not that i don't think she should be but they have a very intimate dinner at her house i think at the end of first season oh do they i remember they have like a really intimate phone call when he's in copenhagen like it's very you know like there, there are a lot of undertones of kind of like, oh, we're like really close. But I, I still felt like they were trying to make it feel like Sydney was like, you know, really valued him as a friend and a companion and a cohort in the like restaurant. But, you know, wasn't really wasn't really digging him in that way. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong. So what's Sydney's donut? Like, do we know uh, what it is? It's like, it, it looks like a donut hole, actually, in the final incarnation. Um, and then mm-hmm. Marcus, like, puts some, like, kind of uh, freeze-dried fruit powder on top of it or something. Mm-hmm. Let me see if there's a description here. There's not much of a description here. But it's basically, it, it's like a small, it looks like a 
like a like a round looks like a donut hole basically and it's in a little dish and marcus sprinkles like some what looks like freeze-dried raspberry on top can you just call it what it is it's a timbit maybe they'll change that in the third season in the third season they'll change it to timbit but do you say z like i feel like when someone says donut hole it's like saying z (laughs) do you know what i mean (laughs) no like alan i do not know what you mean (laughs) yes you do we're in Canada. I understand what we you say mean, Zed but I heartily disagree. <laughs> hmm. You mean because you say Z, or because uh, Timbit is a tr- uh, trademark? I honestly do say Z sometimes. Oh my god! Sometimes I feel like I don't even know you. But yeah, it's because Timbit is a brand name product, and I'm not like yeah. So it's clean. Being and Canadian Xerox. means that I have to acknowledge that that like a name brand product is like what we call a kind of food here, then I'm not mm-hmm. Canadian. Okay, Alan, I'm mm. something else. I'm from Canada, I guess, or something. I don't it just know. It feels you... like you're trying to like infiltrate the United States. You're like, Oh yes, yeah, this is a really good donut hole. <laughs> honestly, no one, I don't know. I honestly, when I was young, we called them donut holes and I think Tim bits did not exist yet. I, should we solve this? No, I don't. All right. Alan doesn't care. No, I just don't want the podcast to become us Googling stuff. <laughs> I I originally, my original knowledge of, of what a Timbit was, was a donut hole. And then later mm. on, I think the Timbit branding happened. Um, oh, okay. And I understand that all Canadians refer to them as Timbits, but I don't love it. Okay. I can't believe you say Z sometimes that upstra- uh <laughs> I can't I can't <laughs> <laughs> Okay, this is not this is not podcast worthy content. <laughs> and I'm probably going to cut it out, but I'll I'll just tell you what I mean. You always say that. So, when I uh, before I was leaving for Japan, I bought a camera. And I was doing a bunch of research about cameras, and most of my research was done on YouTube. And there's like a Nikon that's kind of like a prosumer camera. It's people call it like a vlogging camera, but I don't know. It's actually like a pretty decent um, swappable lens camera that's relatively inexpensive. And it's called the Z30. Is it? (laughs) (laughs) But I watched like most of my research was watching like a hundred YouTube videos and most of the YouTube videos are produced in the States and they all refer to it as a Z 30 and, uh, (laughs) which seemed perfectly appropriate to me. Like, I don't really, I don't have any problem with Americans calling the letter Z Z. I, it either (laughs) seems totally fine to me. We all understand what it means. We understand what Z means and we understand what Z means. But I called Mm -hmm. McBain camera to ask them if they had one in stock. And I was like, Oh, do you have a Nikon Z 30 in stock? And they were like, let me check. And then the guy came back and he's like, yeah, we have the Z 30. (laughs) Oh, I thought you were going to, I thought it was going to be like, uh, uh no we don't have a z30 we do however have a z30 that's kind of what it was like it was a little bit like who are you why are you from the states calling me about this camera right now it was pretty funny i like those uh i like those response it's kind of like uh can i go to the bathroom i don't know can you (laughs) (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) he's like who is this child that doesn't understand that the letter is called zed (laughs) 
have I have I told you this idea? <laughs> There's a whole bunch of books, especially children's rhyming books, where it only makes sense if you use American pronunciation. Like the the cat in the hat comes back. <laughs> <laughs> the the set the the sequel to the cat in the hat is called the cat in the hat comes back uh-huh. and the entire like the last 20 pages require you to pronounce it z for everything to rhyme and make sense right but i want to make i want to make canadian editions of them where the whole <laughs> all of the words are changed so that you can say Z and everything still rhymes <laughs> <laughs> oh man you should do that it's <laughs> uh that's how you get rich probably, right? Yeah, we can publish it in our Dr. Seuss zine. <laughs> okay, I'll quickly go through some of the rest of these dishes. I want to eat the cannoli with the mortadella foam, man, because the mortadella foam is also, like, it's another reference to Austria Francescana because they have memory oh, of a really? mortadella sandwich. Yeah, yeah. mortadella foam. Um, that was the most intriguing and delicious sounding thing to me. Yeah, I mean, it looked really cool too. I don't know what, mm-hmm. it, it's kind of... It's kind of a weird, it's like a little tiny baby cannoli. What did they have underneath it? It's like some kind of mushroom ragu or something. I don't know. Oh, is that right? I don't know. Or something. And then they have like some kind of like quote unquote caviar on top. Um, But it's not actual caviar. I'm pretty sure it's like a caviar that they made that's flavored like something else. Mm -hmm. Can't remember if they said in the show what flavor it was or not. But yeah, that looks cute. Um, The honey bun. Was that something that they were making before? No idea. Okay. It's like on the dessert menu, it's wrapped in a plastic bag. Oh. And it, with label. They show it several times in the last episode. Right. It's sort of like. It's like packaged kind of. Yeah. It, it's like a petty yeah. four, I think, that they give people when they're leaving or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Looks cool. Uh, bucatini. I don't know if that wound up on the menu or not. Definitely. They were calling for bucatini. Yeah. Oh, okay. Friends and yeah. Family, yeah. Well, you were right, Alan. It is a fully Italian menu. Yeah. This looks like it was carbonara or something, which that's funny. Mm. Doesn't belong on a chaos menu. Copenhagen Sunday. This is like a dessert for the bear menu, I think, that Marcus made after coming back from Copenhagen. Yeah, that's right. But it's an ice cream sundae? Yeah, but it looks like it has actual caviar on it. Oh, and a piece of pickled fruit maybe or something. An orange sauce, it says. It doesn't say what flavor the gelato is. Yeah, it's kind of disappointing actually that there wasn't a little bit more emphasis on like showing what the actual food was. I understand why they don't do that necessarily. Like it's not very important, but it would be Mm -hmm. cool to like, you know, just catch a little glimpse of what the actual dish is, you know. And then there was that giant steak, of course. Yep. Which was just a bone sticking up. It's just a T-bone steak in the middle of a plate with the bone sticking up. That didn't seem very imaginative to me. But it was, it looked to me, it looked to me like it was served with a reduction sauce, which is not very Italian, but Uh, I distinctly remember them spooning what looked like a reduction sauce over it. Chaos menu, Alan. You can have anything you want. Mm, Right. Uh, And then, yeah, the omelet. With oh, that was on the it. menu? No, it wasn't on the menu. Oh, okay. It's just food that they featured in the show. Right. Oh, also this, the breakfast sandwich. So the breakfast sandwich with the langanisa sausage and a hash brown inside of it. Man, if that really exists, I want to go eat it. Sorry, what was the context of, when, when was this sandwich, when when Sydney went to breakfast and was expecting Carmen to join her? That's right. 
and he didn't come. Yeah. So it was a breakfast sandwich with longanisa in it. Yeah. Is that why we had it Are at Little Wolf? Well, I just <laughs> there was a longanisa egg sandwich at Little Wolf. Am I crazy? Uh, yeah. Is no, it, you're like right. A, is that is that a? But it was that, that was just a feature, a... and I I don't right. know. I, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure you're right. But it didn't have a hash brown in it, Alan. So disappoint. <laughs> yeah. What is going on there? Um, Little Wolf is a great new restaurant in Edmonton. If you haven't checked it out yet, you should check it out, listener. Uh, and then yeah, seven fishes. Do you understand what the what that dish was when it was on the final menu? No, absolutely not. And that was a question of mine. Okay, actually, there's a small. There's like a little description of it here. This says, I'll just read it to you. When Carmi eventually serves an upscale version of the seven fishes at the bear, we see a different preparation of white fishes like branzino, lobster, oysters, and other shellfish all brought together in one elegant plate. And yet somehow it doesn't compare with the way his mother's feast envelops the Brizano dining room table. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it probably just has like a fish sauce on it and then some shellfish and lobster and branzino apparently yeah i mean it's funny because like i did feel connected to the food in the show like in several episodes i was Mm -hmm. like oh yeah they're like doing like the way that they're showing them cooking and the way that and the food that they're preparing seems very real to me you know it -hmm. never felt false but it did feel much more vague i think in the second season that did than it did in the first season aside from the omelet which is like very you know, they show her the entire preparation of it and and basically talk about exactly what's in it. Aside from that, there wasn't as much specificity around the food as there was, I think, in the first season. So do you think, like, that leaves me, for me, knowing those details of the preparation would help me feel excited about the food and see how different influences and experiences have come together? Mm-hmm. But maybe is that just because I'm a cook and that's how I like that's what I'm interested in? Or do you think that that extra information would help even people who aren't cooks? Like would it would it somehow help them feel more invested and informed in the characters? Because I think about um, like, for instance, the say, say the movie The Menu versus the movie Burnt. Yeah, and they're not the same. They're not the same movie telling the same story at all, at all, at all. But in the menu, they, they made like, you really did understand the dishes that they were serving. Cause they would describe each component. Yeah. Um, they would belabor it even. Um, whereas in burnt, it was like, this is a chef and he's trying to get a Michelin star <laughs> and he's going to serve turbot. But then they do, you don't know anything else about the dish. Like, it's just like, right. we made this slam in turbot dish. Slam and to me, it was like, Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Fla- uh, fire. We made this fire turbot dish. It really slaps. That's what it the kids really would say. Slaps. This um, dish is fire. And I was like, it's weird that they don't tell you what the dish is. Um, yeah. Anyway, so. I, well, I think there's like precedence for both. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I think there's a lot of like reality cooking shows on TV where they talk about, oh, oh yeah, like Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> how many how many times on hell's kitchen do you think that they say the word um uh oh what uh what is it um what's that thing called uh <laughs> risotto i don't know what you're talking no about. no the beef oh wellington how many yeah 
How many times do you think on the on, on the show Hell's Kitchen they use the word Wellington without ever showing what it is, describing what it is, how it's made? No, like you right. could watch you could watch like eight seasons of that show and hear the word Wellington like two thousand times and never understand what a beef Wellington is. You know, like, right. and then you know there are obviously other cooking shows maybe there aren't as many of them now where they actually walk you through the preparation of something you know and so and i think you know like in a lot of shows that still exist where they do walk you through the preparation of something part of it is like showing the cultural aspect of where that dish comes from and where the ingredients come from and things like that you know like if you uh watch um I don't know, like travel cooking shows or, you know, um, stuff like that. Then, you know, like you get a lot of that content too, you know, like we're in a region and we're going to cook this dish that's like of the region and, and like, we're going to talk about the people and we're going to talk about the restaurants that cook this dish and why and whatever. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that like, like, I think that's why there's like a vernacular for that in filmmaking on both sides of that. Right. Like, a lot of people understand that you can watch what's happening in the kitchen without even having to know what food they're serving. And then a lot of people, you know, there's a, there's a film vernacular for like, oh, there's a real story behind this food and it's it's culturally significant and stuff like that. And I think that allows like a filmmaker or a storyteller to use both of those tools. Um, and I think they're doing a little bit of both in the bear, you know. Mm-hmm. And I think in the first season it was they, they leaned a little bit more on – like the cultural aspect of it. Um, but I don't know, not like not tons. I, it, I feel like in the second season, there was just too much going on for them to really focus on that, which is kind of unfortunate. Like, but it didn't, it didn't really bother me, but at the same time, like looking back at it now, I'm like, well, yeah, it's, it's a show about food and they, I mean, it's not really a show about food. It's a show about people who are making food you know like it's it's really a show yeah, about the yeah. people and and i think that like there is some like contextualization of the characters through the food that they enjoy and the places that they eat and the and the like um influences that they bring to the menu and stuff like that but they don't lean too heavily on it mm-hmm. and yeah. You know, I it would be nice. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Like as a cook, it would be nice for me to have more context in that way. And it would that would really be a good way to communicate those things to me. And the show usually has an understanding of how to use those details to communicate something about the character, which I think is like, you know, rare and fascinating as a cook. But yeah, I, I can kind of understand why they don't lean on it too heavily or or worry about that detail too much because, you know, it, it's complicated to do those things like to shoot them accurately and to have accurate detail about them and you know like it's it's a it's a lot of research it's a lot of changing the way that you would write or shoot a scene and stuff like that so ultimately not very important for the story like if the yeah kind of the 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 things that make the story move forward are like well this food is cold and the fact that the food is cold is why I'm upset. And yeah, yeah. that's what I'm trying to communicate. It doesn't matter exactly. what the food is. <laughs> yeah, totally. Or it's like the food's taking too long. And that's what's important to me as a character because yeah. I, yeah. Although it'd be pretty ridiculous if somebody was mad about the food being cold and then you found out that it was ice cream. That would be, <laughs> that would be really weird. 
Oh, with you, everything's ice cream. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah. I hope that in season three, because like in season three, they're not going to be opening a restaurant. <laughs> Who knows? Who <laughs> yeah. knows? <laughs> but like see, the opening uh, of season three, Sydney and Marcus will be married. Carmi and Claire will be married. <laughs> the the bear will have, oh, sorry. Uh, Richie and his ex-wife will be married. They'll and be running the bear. Carmi and Sydney will both be at different restaurants. Carmi and Sydney will be married. I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening to Food Court, a podcast recorded in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Food Court is hosted by Alan Sudeby and Shale McDonald. Theme music by Ryan and Shale McDonald. Make sure to subscribe to Food Court in Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or in your favorite podcast player. We love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at feedback at foodcourt.fm or find us on Instagram at foodcourtpodcast. If you want to spread the word, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'll be back in two weeks with a fresh new episode. Thanks for listening.